explanation and scriptural basis of the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's a summary. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And I asked Bob to bring the, uh, the marker board in here today just to kind of get a visual picture of what we're talking about. If I take this circle to represent God, then within the Trinity, within the being of God, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person being fully God, and yet, and there is one God, but how can there be one God and three persons? That's the question. That's the question that people have pondered and, and, and uh, reasoned about and struggled over and asked about for, um, for centuries. And I think that the Christian church, uh, finally at the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon 325-381, came up with a good, a good solution that doesn't answer all of our questions. I don't think we're ever going to have all of our questions answered um, about the doctrine of the Trinity, but it sets out some boundaries and does say some very helpful things. So, um, so that's the question. Uh, how can this be? How can God be one being and yet be three persons? Um, I'm looking, looking for an example here. Um, I have Ev and... I'll take Mike and Ev and John here. Those are three persons. Okay, Mike, Ev, and John, three persons. Great, you can get that. You can talk to Mike, you can talk to Ev, you can talk to John, they can talk to each other, three persons. You say, that's fine. Each person is a human being, fine. But you say, wait a minute, they're not one being, they're three beings. I see one being here, one being here, one being here. Right? Three different beings. But wait a minute, how can God be one being? and three persons. See, that's the problem. And I can say it in a kind of a simple sentence here. Uh, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God, but then how can there be three persons? That's the problem. But as we put together dozens of verses from the Bible that talk about the Father, talk about the Son, talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go through a number of these verses and say, Here are verses that say the Father is God. Here are verses that say the Son is God. And here are some verses that say the Holy Spirit is God. And then here are verses that say there's one God. And we find that hinted at in the Old Testament. We find it more fully revealed in the New Testament. And the authors seem content to say all of those things, but but not to explain how it could be. So that's the puzzle that we're going to be working on this week and then uh, three weeks from now when we come back and try to finish it up. And I'll go through a number of the passages, and then I want to go through some wrong ideas that people have had in the history of the church. There are some heresies. Sabellianism or modalism is one. Arianism is another. Tritheism is another. And we're going to go through some of those mistakes that people have made to try to guard against that. And then there are some examples that people give. They say, oh, the Trinity is like this, or it's like that, or it's like that, and they take examples from our life and uh, maybe you've heard some of those, and they may be helpful a little bit, but what I'm going to say is, ultimately, none of those examples really solves the problem for us. Um, so that's, that's kind of an overview of where we're going. So you ready? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture. 
there's a partial revelation of this in the Old Testament. Um, although I don't think people at the time of the Old Testament understood very much about it, although the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly found in the Old Testament, several passages suggest or even imply that God exists as more than one person. We start out, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us, what's this word doing here, us? Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Those are plurals, and they're plural in the Hebrew text as well. Who's God talking to? And let them have dominion, etc. Hmm. It's a problem. I once spent several days, three or four days maybe, uh, Uh, taking most of the day, going through all the comments of the Jewish rabbis on this verse. Uh, This is comments that were written after the time of the Old Testament. And they were trying to figure it out in the the Mishnah, the Talmud, uh, other Jewish writings. There's a Tosefta, there's the Midrash Rabbah, there's writings of uh, Philo and Josephus. They weren't rabbis, but they were Jewish teachers went through all of that material, every, every bit of Jewish commentary that I could find, and they were asking, what is meant by the plurals? Let us make man in our image. <clears throat> and they couldn't figure it out. Some rabbis were saying, oh, that's God speaking to angels. <clears throat> and other rabbis would say, no, it can't be. We're not made in the image of angels, and angels didn't help create us. And other rabbis were saying, well, it's like a king. When a king says, you know, it pleases us to invade France. or something. <laughs> I mean, that rabbis wouldn't say that. I'm making that up. But uh, when, when, when the king says, it pleases us to have lunch now or something. Uh, but the problem is, though, that happens in some cultures, in some languages. It's not found in the Hebrew. Uh, Old Testament It's not found in the Hebrew language. And so it would be kind of unprecedented. <clears throat> So the rabbis basically contradicted one another and they couldn't come to a solution. I think the reason they couldn't come to a solution is that they didn't understand or they didn't want to admit that there could be three persons in the being of God. Because it sounds like three gods then. See, that's the problem. They wanted to maintain that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But I think ultimately, looking back on Genesis 1.26, now from the perspective of the New Testament, I think we have here intertrinitarian conversation. I think we have deliberation where the Father is saying to the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. We don't know that just from that verse, but we see it now looking back from the perspective of the New Testament. It helps us understand it more fully. In fact, Having said that, I would even go back earlier in Genesis. The second, okay, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the second verse, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the waters. See, now I, I don't think the Jewish people, when they first read that back in the time of Moses, I don't think they knew quite what it meant by the Spirit of God, but 
Now from the New Testament perspective looking back, I think also that was the Holy Spirit in his role of preserving and sustaining the earth even when it was first formed. So we get some partial revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There are other passages like that. <clears throat> Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then just skipping around to some other passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6.8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and, whom will, and who will go for us? Again, speaking, God speaking of himself in the plural. Or, <clears throat> here's an interesting passage in Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... <clears throat> your God has anointed you. Wait a minute. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companion. How can the psalmist be saying, your throne, O God, is forever. Therefore, God has anointed you as if the person he's speaking to is called God and another person is called God. Kind of a puzzle. Again, I think there's plurality hinted at in the Trinity. <clears throat> and of course, this verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament to apply to Christ. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says. Now here the author of Hebrews goes back and interprets Psalm 45 for us. He quotes it. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's picking up Psalm 45, verse 6. This is just a quotation. And the Hebrews is saying, this is spoken of the Son. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, um, again, uh, I don't know how fully David understood this, but I think what is happening is David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is somehow saying the Lord that is, God the Father, said to my Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. From the benefit of the New Testament, I'm looking and I'm thinking what is going on is the Father is saying to the Son, sit at my right hand. I don't know if it was just the Holy Spirit giving David these words to say, and David was just pondering what they meant, or David had some hint of what they meant. I don't know, but there it is in Psalm 110. And Jesus quotes this in his disputes with Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who um, were attacking him and criticizing him. The Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, here he's talking about David, in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And I think Jesus knew that this meant the father says to the son. So now take out my brackets here. David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
if David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. So he's saying, wait, David is, is uh, calling the Messiah his Lord. Well, how can he come from David then? And they couldn't figure that out. Of course, the answer is that the Messiah is going to be both God and man. But the Pharisees didn't understand that. Then that was Jesus. Isaiah 63.10 is another passage from the Old Testament. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. Um, his Holy Spirit implies that the Holy Spirit is distinct from God the Father. And if the Holy Spirit is grieved, that's a personal activity or a personal attribute of being grieved. And so it indicates there's a distinct personality or a distinct personhood of the Holy Spirit. Malachi 3, 1 to 2, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so... Um, uh, God is saying, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord of hosts is saying that the Lord is coming, speaking of another person who is called Lord in the third person. He was Hosea 1.7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. Um, God speaking again. And so um, what, what is this? What are these hints of the doctrine of the Trinity? And uh, here's... Uh, perhaps a verse that uh, in Isaiah 48 has uh, three persons involved in it. Draw near to me, hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is the, this is the servant of the Lord who um, is saying, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. And if we understand the servant of the Lord ultimately also to be uh, God himself, then the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Um, uh, I didn't, just let me look again here at Isaiah 48, 16, just a moment. I'm sorry, this is, yeah, this is, uh, this is the Lord himself speaking. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him, he shall perform his purpose. I have spoken, I have called him, I have brought him. Draw near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. It's a question of whether the quotation ends from the Lord uh, here and who is speaking, but at least there's someone who is being sent by the Lord, and, um, and his spirit is someone distinct from that. Well, those are hints, hints of plurality of persons in the Old Testament. Now there's a more complete revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. So what we have is we're going through... The Bible, and there are there are hints, but people could have said, hmm, I wonder what that means. Hmm, why is God speaking in the plural? But they didn't know. Well, we get to the New Testament, we get more complete understanding, and that these that we find out there are three persons in God, and they are called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are a number of passages that do this, that, that have all three persons of the Trinity involved. Matthew 13, 16 to 17, 
When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, that's God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now you have three persons here. You have Jesus being baptized, and you have the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and you have God the Father speaking from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. So you get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one moment, and each person doing something different. God the Father speaking, Jesus being baptized, and the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Or Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek text here, the construction shows that it's 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 the in the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, three persons. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 4 to 6, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. What we get here in this verse is um, one passage that shows a pattern in the New Testament where the word Lord is generally applied to God the Son, and the word God is generally applied to uh, God the Father. It's not 100% of the time, but it's generally that way. And so, in the New Testament, usually this word God, which in Greek is Theos, T-H-E-O-S, that's usually applied to God the Father. And this word, Lord, which in Greek is K-Y-R-I-O-S, kurios, that's generally applied to God the Son. Not 100%, because there are seven or eight times where the word Theos, God, is, also, is applied to the Son. And, um, but generally, this is the pattern. And I remember uh, earlier in my Christian life, I thought, oh, there are only seven or eight verses that call Jesus God in the New Testament. But I didn't realize that this word, Lord, or kurios, is applied over 200 times to Jesus in the New Testament. And this Greek word, this Greek word, Lord, if you go back into the Old Testament... That Greek word, Lord, or kurios, that's used 6,886 or something like that, over 6,000 times, 6,800 times approximately, to translate the Greek word or the Hebrew word, which is Yahweh or Jehovah. Or it's just translated Lord in most of our English translations. Because you have the word Lord and the word God in the Old Testament, both referring to God. And so this word is used for Lord in the Old Testament over 6,800 times. And so when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord, it's not, it's not any diminishing of the idea that he is truly God. Am I, am I making sense? Is that too? The word Lord echoes the Old Testament name for God. One of the two Old Testament names for God. That's that's what I'm trying to say. 
So, Spirit, Lord, and God, three persons. Um, here we go, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three in 2 Corinthians 3.14. Or Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here we get God the Father and Lord being used generally of God the Son or of Christ and Spirit, all three persons in, again, one passage. Jude 20 to 21. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, three persons just mentioned all three together as if this was a normal, expected kind of thing. So um, all I'm saying here is that where we had a hint of plurality of persons in God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, a number of passages seem very comfortable speaking of uh, God and Lord and Spirit uh, in the same passage and uh, thinking of them all um, in belonging in the same category and belonging together. Okay, that was an overview. Now, how do we, how do we put together this idea that there's three persons in one God um, and keep from guarding against mistakes? Well, three, per, three statements will summarize the biblical teachings. And uh, the three statements are going to be, number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there's one God. And if we can get all those together, then we'll, we'll be doing fine. So God is three persons. What this means is, I'm arguing against the idea that God is just one person who acts in different ways. And there are, there, there, um, in the history of the church, there were some people who said, oh, wait a minute, we don't believe this three persons deal. Um, you know, I had, I had Mike and Evan, John as, as examples of three different persons, and they said, well, wait a minute, we don't believe that. We believe it's just one person who's acting in three different ways. Like if we could say Mike is a husband, and then sometimes he's a... Um, website manager for our Christian Essentials class, and sometimes he's an airplane pilot. He's acting three different ways, but it's just one person. And, and some people said, well, God isn't three persons. He just, you know, in the Old Testament, he acted like a father, and then in the New Testament Gospels, he's like Jesus, and then in the epistles, he acts like the Holy Spirit. But it's just one person acting in different ways. Or a person could be, uh, kind of in literature, we could say a person could be a farmer and the mayor of his town and a husband. So he has different hats at different times, that kind of thing. So um, now I want to say that's wrong, that the Bible says there are three persons in God. So God is three persons. The fact that God is three persons means that each person of the Trinity is distinct from two other persons. I'm going to say that there is a group in the world today that doesn't believe this. It's called Oneness Pentecostals, or Jesus Only is kind of the way uh, sometimes they're referred to. And um, uh, they don't have, they're not, it's, there's a group, it's called the United Pentecostal Church. They're not part of the Assemblies of God. They're not part of any other Pentecostal group. They were kicked out of the Assemblies of God in 1913, 1914, or something like that. Um, but they, they do hold that God is only one person. And the problem is, you've got the, 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 
it's a very simple solution. Most heresies, you know, they take one, one part of the truth and make it into the whole truth. But they deny this idea of the biblical teaching, I think the force of it. They deny that the idea that, uh, that you've got the persons interacting genuinely and they're three different persons in God. So let's see the evidence for that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's very interesting that with, with God implies that the word, and we're going to learn later in that chapter that the word is Jesus. We read down in, in, uh, in John 1. The word was with God. If you're with someone, that means you're not the same as the person. It's a distinct person. Okay, so there are two persons there. But then the word was God. How can that be? Well, John just states it, right? The first verse. Uh, John 17, 24, Jesus is praying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is two different persons. The Father gave glory to the Son, and the Father loved the Son. That's interpersonal interaction. That's not one person. That's two persons, one person relating to the other. So God is uh, God is three persons. And again, uh, 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Two different persons. The, Jesus is uh, advocating or representing us before the Father. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, Jesus, whom we believe to be fully God, is praying to the Father for us. He's making intercession. That means there's personal interaction. There's two different persons. The Son is praying and the Father is hearing the prayers. That's two separate persons. John 14, 26, the Helper, whom the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. That's someone different from the Son. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. He will send the Father in my name. Uh, the Father will send him in Jesus' name. And so he's a distinct person. And Romans 8.27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Once again, you have the Spirit interceding to the Father, making prayers to the Father. That implies the Spirit and the Father are different. So back to this diagram, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. And they, the Son can pray to the Father, the Father can send the Son. Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father. There are interpersonal relationships there. Okay? Matthew 8, 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three different names mentioned. And John 14, 26, Jesus says, It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus sent, so here now Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. We had the Father sending the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. And so once again, uh, there's an, uh, a distinction of persons if Jesus or the Son sends the Holy Spirit to us. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, uh, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of service, the same Lord, varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Again, three different persons named. Um, now, um, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person and not just the power of God. There have been some people throughout the history of the church who have said, well, you know, I can see that the Father and Son are different, but I don't get this business about the Holy Spirit. 
some people have said the Holy Spirit, he's just, that just means, that's just a word for the breath or the wind or the power of God working in the world. And in fact, um, when I was in uh, my doctoral work, um, the, uh, the man who was the second reader on my PhD dissertation, Jeffrey Lamp, who was the Regis Professor of Divinity or the head professor of divinity at the University of Cambridge, he didn't believe in the deity of the Holy Spirit. He was binatarian, not trinitarian. Um, and uh, different people throughout the history of the earth have said this. They said, well, I don't think the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. The problem is there are many passages that speak of the Holy Spirit in personal terms. And it's good for us to hear these because I think that sometimes we tend to think of the Holy Spirit just as an it or just as a force or just as uh, kind of an impersonal power that can empower us. And in fact, the Holy Spirit in the Bible is talked about as a person with, with activities that belong to personhood that he is carrying out. So Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one, hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So... Um, I don't think that this verse is supposed to be in here because I cannot figure out how it's proving what I... We'll skip that verse. Okay. Um, I just have to make a note. I don't know what happened here. Next one works. John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. That's a personal activity. The Holy Spirit teaches people all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's a personal activity. The Holy Spirit works in the apostles to enable them to remember what Jesus has said. Or, John 14, 26, the helper, when the helper comes, he will bear witness about me. He's called the helper or paraclete. That's a personal activity that he comes to, to help us. And he bears witness. That's a personal activity. Someone bears witness to someone else. The wind or a forest doesn't do that. There's testimony that he bears. Um, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That means understanding our needs and helping our prayers as we come before God. That's a personal activity. The Spirit searches everything, 1 Corinthians 2.10, even the depths of God. I think that we were talking about the attributes of God for the last several weeks. We just understood a really tiny, tiny, tiny bit of the wonder and excellence of who God is. But here, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit searches everything, and he knows every aspect of the depths of God and, and, and understands. And so I think, again, that's a, a personal activity of the Holy Spirit. Or here in Acts 16, 6 to 7, uh, Paul and his traveling companions are going through Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, which is another word for the Holy Spirit, another phrase, did not allow them. So the Holy Spirit says to go here and then says, no, don't go there. That's a personal action of the Holy Spirit relating to Paul and the others as persons. Um, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. That's, again, personal activity. The Holy Spirit as a person. And uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Well, that means the Holy Spirit can be grieved or troubled by what we do. I was reading this morning about Solomon, uh, and uh, he, at the end of his life, tragically, Solomon had these many wives who turned away his heart to uh, worship other gods and serve them, and, and said the Lord was angry with Solomon. Well, I, that's a personal kind of attitude towards Solomon that, that God had at that time of the Old Testament. And now... Um, again, here it's saying the Holy Spirit himself can have a, a sorrow or a grief at us if we do things that go contrary to his will, and that's a personal activity, that it's a person we have offended, not just a force or power. There are a number of passages that would not make sense if the Holy Spirit is just called the power of God. For instance, Luke 14, 14, uh, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, well, if the Holy Spirit were just a power, you would have to say this means the Holy Spirit returned in the power of the power of God to Galilee. It doesn't, wouldn't make any sense. The Holy Spirit is different from the power of God. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Well, if, if the Holy Spirit is just a power or a force, it would say God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and with power. That doesn't, it would be redundant. So... Um, uh, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. Now, what about 2 Corinthians 3.17? This is kind of a puzzling passage. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit? What is going on here? If we take the idea that in the New Testament, Lord is often the word applied to the Son, and is it saying the Son is the Holy Spirit? Is this verse denying all those other passages that show a distinction of persons between the Son and the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. I think we have to seek another understanding for that passage. And just as I said, generally, the word God is applied to the Father, but sometimes it's applied to the Son. So I think here... Generally, the word Lord is applied to the Son, but here's a, uh, a time where I think it is saying something like this. You've been reading your Old Testament. You read about the Lord did this and the Lord did that and the Lord did this and the Lord did that. And Paul is saying, when you read that, realize that Lord, that, 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 that Lord is that the Lord is God himself, and that is the Spirit. That is, that the Holy Spirit is the Lord you read about in the Old Testament, or is the God of the Old Testament. Um, so I, 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 think, I, I think it's just saying that the Holy Spirit is, is God or is divine, and not, not mixing up the persons of the Trinity, but just not following strict... Um, consistency in terms of how the word Lord is applied. Um, but that it's, I don't know, if you have more thoughts on that passage, you can, you can let me know. Um, but I think it just means that, that God is the Spirit as well as God is the Son and God is the Father. Okay, so now, all that was to say, I don't know how many slides I have to go back, <clears throat> I was saying there are three statements that summarize the biblical teaching. 
Did I not give you an outline today? It's too late now. No, I, I, it's not copied yet. It won't get back here till the class is over. I, I can't believe I did this. I walked in and talked to everybody. <clears throat> but you're following with me, right? Okay. And you're not going to be here the 20th. We'll, we'll have extra copies on the 20th. You can always buy the book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, no. Okay, you're, we're tracking. We're tracking. All right. So, and and what what have I said? Three statements summarize the biblical teaching. First, you know, I was wondering why you were paying so close attention to me. <laughs> ah, finding out. Okay. Okay. Number one, God is three persons. Okay, that's so Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're sending, they're praying, they're interceding, they're relating to one another, and, they're through, and the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. All right, that's, that's number one. Statement number two is, each person is fully God. Now, this, I'm saying this to say, to overcome the idea that God is just Father, and then there are these lesser beings called Son and Holy Spirit. That basically, that's a heresy called Arianism, that the Son was created and the Holy Spirit was created, and really the Father is just God. That, that's not true. What I want to say in these passages is each person is fully God, and here's where it gets tricky. If, if this represents God then how much of this circle is the Father? If the Father is fully God, then the whole circle is the Father. Okay? Then how much of this circle is the Son? The whole circle is the Son. Because the Son is fully God. And if the Holy Spirit is fully God, then the whole circle is the Holy Spirit. And you say, wait a minute. I thought you said three distinct persons. I did. That's what makes it hard. How can there be three distinct persons, but each person is the whole being? That's the puzzle. But let's look at what these passages say. And See, I think what happened was the church sort of went through these passages and said, huh, well, look at this, look at this, look at this. And the church keeps driving to this idea that there are three persons. We can't get around that. That's really clear. Is they're doing distinct things and they're relating to each other. And now we get these passages that say, wait a minute, each of these persons is fully God. And here's where these passages go. I don't know if we'll get through all of these today. But um, first, uh, God the Father is clearly God. And he's the one in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And nobody is going to argue with that. And I'm not going to give hundreds of passages about God our Father, etc. But number two, the Son is fully God. Is there evidence for that? Yes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's distinction. And the Word was God. There's identity. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. There's, he's creating. In him was life, and the light was, life was the light of men. Um, 
I could go into some detail. I don't think I'll do that now, um, but I've, I've got it in my systematic theology book in a long, long uh, two or three paragraph footnote. And the word was God in Greek, kaitheos ein halagos. The Jehovah's Witnesses translate this. The word was a God, small g. There's a Greek grammar question here, a technical question of Greek grammar. Um, they say, wait a minute, this definite article the is not before theos, before God. The reason is it shows in Greek that it's the predicate of the sentence. The word was God, and that's the way Greek does that. And I'm, I'm not going to go into detail about that now. But just to say that if Jehovah's Witnesses argue about that with you, um, uh, just so you can be, you, you have to look up some literature for arguments about it. And I've got some in the Systematic Theology book, or there are other books that respond to them. But don't be afraid that they have any scholarly evidence on their side. They don't. There's no Greek grammarian in history that I know that has sided with them other than Jehovah's Witnesses themselves. Um, and uh, it was about uh, lesson six when I taught first-year Greek grammar that we came to how you indicate the predicate in a sentence with a linking verb. It's not like a huge, complicated argument, a, a, a complicated or uncertain uh, grammatical rule, um, but uh, I think I'll go on. It does say the word was God, and it, it clearly says that, and you can stand on that. And the question, the question ultimately ends up, who is the God that is being talked about in the context? And it's the God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the God who sent John uh, the Baptist to proclaim uh, that the Lord is coming. John 20, 28, and... Um, 30 and 31. This is near the end of John's gospel. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is Jesus appearing to Thomas and saying, you know, uh, and showing him the wounds in his hands and sides that touch me. And, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And now John, um, and Jesus approves of this, says, uh, blessed, blessed are you. he blesses uh, Judas, for, or, uh, blesses, blesses Thomas for saying this. And then it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, this is really the dramatic climax of John's gospel, where Jesus died, rose from the dead, and then he appears to the disciples, and then he appears to doubting Thomas. And Thomas, when he sees Jesus risen from the dead, says, my Lord and my God, he calls uh, Jesus his God, and Jesus approves of this, and then basically Jesus says, I, I want everybody else to do this. I didn't, get the, I didn't print these verses. Um, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And John's point is, that's going to be you readers. And then John says, this is the purpose of my gospel, so that you would believe. That is, I wrote, wrote down all these signs or miracles so that you would be like Thomas, and you would believe, and that you would call Jesus my Lord and my God, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. In other words, this is... John saying, this is so important, I want you to have the same attitude toward Jesus and call him the Son of God or call him my Lord and my God. 
Uh, Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he is called our God and Savior. Romans 9.5, Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul calls Christ the one who is God over all. Isaiah 9.6 predicts that the son to be born, the son uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's a prediction of the, the Son to be born who will be called Mighty God. And then uh, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God is in Christ. Um, so, so the Son is fully God. Uh, Father is God, the Son is God, and, and there are many, many other passages that, uh, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Or the book of Hebrews that says, You, Lord, founded the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They're attributing creation to Christ. There are many other passages, and I've just, talked, I've just touched on some of them. But the evidence for the deity of Christ in the New Testament is abundant and overwhelming then the Holy Spirit is also fully God. Uh, this is very interesting. In the Great Commission, for instance, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, ace ta'anama means is, it's into the name, and it's just one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is, the name is the quality or character of the person, and there's one name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, they all have the same character, the same quality. Um, and just think how strange it would be. It just couldn't be that, that Jesus would say, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the angel Gabriel. You, you couldn't do that. You can't put the angel Gabriel up there or the angel Michael or anything, any other created being. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit puts the Holy Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son. Um, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and Spirit, Lord, and God connected together in 1 Corinthians 12, and again, 2 Corinthians 13, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit connected together. Acts 5, 3 to 4, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. There's an identity there where the Holy Spirit is identified as God. Or, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So again, how do you know that you're God's temple? Well, God's spirit dwells in you. That means God is dwelling in you, so you're God's temple. So what do we have? Three, God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So each person is fully God. Well, if that's all we had... Uh, we'd say there are three persons, each one's fully God. Um, that's simple. There are three gods. I mean, that's, that's kind of, if that's all we had, if we just had there are three different persons and each one is God, we'd say, okay, there are three gods. The problem is you get to some passages in the Bible that say there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or 1 Kings 8, uh, 60, the Lord is God, there is no other there is just one God. Isaiah 45, 5 to 6. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 and 21 and 22. There is one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God. 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Romans 3.30, God is one. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the, the demons believe and shudder. So, hmm. Huh. So how do we put that all together? <laughs> now, and there are some simplistic solutions. If you deny, if uh, some simplistic solutions must deny one strand of the biblical teaching. And... Um, See, these are the three, three things I've said. God is three persons, and they relate to each other. Each person is fully God, a lot of verses there, and there's one God, a lot of verses there. Now, if you took out the first one, you just denied that first statement. You just say each person is fully God and there's one God, well, then, uh, the, then you don't have three persons anymore. You just got one person in God, and that doesn't work. Or if you deny that each person is fully God, then you get this picture where you've got Son and Spirit being created beings, and they're not fully God. That's Jehovah's Witnesses would believe that uh, that the the sun is uh, the sun is created, and uh, or you deny that there is one God, then you get three gods. But that doesn't really give us a good solution either. So what we do, we have to have all three of those statements together. And the question is, how can that be? We don't know anything like this. How can we understand this? I will take a minute or two before we get out, because now what I want to do next time we come together is. Look at these mistakes that people have made, what's called Sabellianism or modalism, it's called Arianism, uh, some of these mistakes that people made in trying to understand or explain this and probably take some analogies and then finally try to explain how is it that the persons of the Trinity relate to the being of God. Is there any way we can understand it? So we'll try to put that together next time. But do you have a couple of uh, just comments or questions right now, E.G.? Good question. Good difference. practical question. Which which person should you pray to? Yeah. Does it make any difference whether you make any difference? Well, um, short answer is it's okay to pray to any one of the members of the Trinity. Or sometimes we just pray to God generally, and that's okay too. Um, but Jesus prayed to the Father a lot. Uh, there are examples where when Stephen was dying, he said, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." He was praying to Jesus. And Maranatha, our Lord come, I think is a prayer to Jesus. Or when the disciples were they were choosing a new, new apostle to replace Judas, Lord, show which one of these you have chosen. I think they're praying to Jesus. Um, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Those are prayers to Jesus. And Jesus is the great high priest who understands, so we should pray to him. There aren't any explicit prayers to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, but I don't the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in Romans 8. And I just, um, we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. He teaches, he leads. I think surely we can talk to him. He is God and there's nothing wrong with speaking to him and uh, in specific situations praying for his power or direction. So, good question. Ev? Many years ago, I, I heard um, the analogy of water used mm -hmm. to explain the Trinity, and that was helpful to me. What do you think about that analogy? Yeah, because water can be steam or water or ice. Right. Okay. And it's all H2O. It's, it's all just H2O, in various different forms. forms. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, it, I mean, it, maybe it's a little bit helpful, but the problem is that it doesn't all have the same characteristics, but... Each person in the Trinity has the same attributes. 
I mean, if it's steam, it, but, but that's not the big problem. The big problem is, um, there are two problems. One is, if you take a drop of water, it's not at the same time ice. Uh, that is, I want to say that God the Son is fully God, but that drop of water is only part of the water you've got. Some of it's ice and some of it's steam. It's not all the water. It's, it'd be I've got an ice cube and a drop of water and a jar of steam. There are three different beings, basically. Okay, so you can't... Different, yeah, different properties, yeah. The person's at different properties, but they're not the one being. But they're in essence the same. They're all H2O. Yeah, there's something like that. But they're not all the same being. That is... They're not all the same at the same time. They're not the same at the same time, yeah. yeah. And, and the other problem is ice cube and drop of water and steam are not persons. Well, so it's no, just... It's just, a, just yeah, yeah. It's... What I'm going to say about those analogies all help us a little bit, but they all break down. Yeah. Okay. What else? What? One what, three who's. One what? God is one what, three who's. One what, three who's. Oh, one what and three who's. Yeah, that's true. One being and three persons. But each person is, the, is all the one what. <laughs> when? Yeah, in your opinion, why do you think Jesus had to leave before the Holy Spirit could come? God planned it that way. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, one thing was that Jesus, while he was on earth, was one place at one time. Because he was in a human body, but the Holy Spirit is every place. Um, so that's that's one one thing, but I'm I'm not sure of all the reasons. Just God planned that would be the way things would happen. So, anything else? Yeah, John. It seems that the Bible repeats itself a lot. That's a, that's a big concept for us, and it, it seems as though. What, Go ahead, say again. Yeah, it, it it seems that the Bible, when it repeats itself a lot, is something that we're to really pay attention to and get. And it, it also seems as though uh, it makes a point of calling Jesus all the different designations, calls the Father all the different designations, mm -hmm. calls the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. all the different designations. Mm -hmm. Many, many of them, anyway. I guess this yeah. is just an observation. I mean, you just pointed it okay. out. Okay. Yeah. I'm, so, so that if the word God important. and Lord and uh, can, God and Lord can both be used of any any members, just have to take yeah, it, that's helpful. Just have to okay. take it that way. And yeah. That's it. Okay. And so, okay, John, what the church did for up to 300 years is said, okay, it says that there's three persons, says each one is God, it says there's one God, so we believe it. Where they got to trouble was thinking about it more <laughs> and trying. How can this be? Because every time I know three different persons, they're three different beings. See, uh, uh, you and Kathy and John, they're three different persons. So, so that's how you try to put it together. And then people started giving explanations for how it could work. And when they gave explanations, they got in trouble. So, all right, Sandy. I heard Dallas Willard once say, uh, in speaking about the mystery, really, of the Trinity, that God is... Two, three to be one, but two, one to be three. What, how would you respond to that? 
Well, sure. I mean, it just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's oneness and threeness. So, okay. yeah. But don't you think that part of this is we take our, our creaturely rational minds and we extend out as far as we can and we come up against the wall of, of the mystery of who God the creator yeah. is and that there's a sense in which after we've done all we can to understand and read all the scripture uh, in the original languages and read all the uh, commentaries that we have to bow yeah. and acknowledge that this is an area of mystery. Yeah, helpful, Sandy. And that's, I mean, I'll just tell you where where I'm going is that every time we try to understand a little bit more and give an example, we say, no, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Finally, we say, we don't know anything like this. And then I'm going to say, yes, that's right. <laughs> God is different. And so we uh, have to worship him, uh, and he is different. Let's, uh, let's, I'm going to pray here, but I'm, I, I resolved to myself not to go late, and I've gone late again. I'm sorry. But will you hurry and make up for the lateness so we don't walk in late because uh, Scott's going to be leading worship over here? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the excellence of your being and that you give us, certainly, Lord, these words in, in the Bible to help us to understand who you are. Lord, help us uh, to, to understand and also to bow in wonder and adoration and give thanks to you for the excellence of your being. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.